Everybody, uh, I don't think anybody likes the new theme. <laughs> um, I like it. I like the old one, too. <laughs> uh, uh, you know... <laughs> Get it, you just want the song back. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of my main motivation. <laughs> it's too good. Yeah. Uh, but the version that I make that's my own isn't going to be so, like, jock jams. Mm. It's going to be more precious and twee. I'm going to have Zoe Deschanel sing it. Guys, I was watching New Girl last night, uh-huh. and Zoe Deschanel, eh, I don't get it anymore. Is you, the show still on the air? You've officially uh, grown up. I think I have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's see, that's a college-era crush. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Lizzie Kaplan had a short arc on that show mm. she was on, and I'm like, ooh, ooh, Lizzie Kaplan. Yeah. I yeah. think I'm man enough for your non-childlike appearance. <laughs> I was going to say, like, where is this going? Well, Zoe Deschanel... I prefer Meryl Streep. I, I, I love the intelligence <laughs> uh, in her I, eyes. I prefer Dame Judy Dench. Mm. Uh, so you guys are joking, and you can both burn in hell, because uh, <laughs> Meryl Streep... Is fucking the sexiest lady in the world. I, I oh, have is to, Dame Judy Dench? Eh. <laughs> I have to say, um, it's not recording, right? Or at least this isn't going on the pod. <laughs> this is all material, <laughs> okay, baby. Modern day Kirsten Dunst is the most attractive. She's like kind of plumped up. <laughs> A bit. <laughs> Shit. Are we recording that? And, no, and like seeing her with Jesse Plemons, they're like uh, two like uh, like a doughy couple. Oh no, no, and it's the, definitely no, not adorable. No, Jesse Plemons is super in shape. He just has a baby face. Mm, not based on pictures I've seen. <laughs> He's like an in shape guy with a baby face. He's got you. Well, you haven't watched Fargo, the TV show. I watched the first season. The first, se- the first season's not great. The second season's amazing. The third season, I don't know. That, that ended right when Twin Peaks: The Return came on, and I was like, "Oh, fuck, fuck Fargo!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. We talked about this. I watched the first season and hated it. And I read, and immediately afterwards, I read an interview. Is this pod banter? The- yeah, leave it. <laughs> Do you want to take uh, another crack at she plumped up? <laughs> <laughs> like a fucking uh, Hebrew national uh, fucking oh, hot dog. dog. No, no, she filled out. <laughs> That's even worse somehow. Did she? She had a child, right? Yeah, she matured. She had a child with Jesse Plemons. Yeah, I, I find her she, to be a very beautiful and charming lady. Put it in, in a her... way that doesn't involve her body changing mass or volume. <laughs> um. I don't know. I find her. I find her way more attractive now than I've ever found her. There you go. Okay. There you go. Because she's uh, thick, anyway. man. <laughs> oh, God. What? Frank, say it. Let's turn it into uh, a weekly thing. Wait, what? Oh, uh, so I actually want to use that on the pod, but uh, Justin wants to skeet in Kirsten Dunn. <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> so I, I actually want to use that on the pod for when we start. But I, I want to—it's—it's—it's it's for a different purpose. Jesus. Do so, we, so do we just start? want to have this not be on the pod? No, no. I say first segment done. No, <laughs> I think that's cool. No stuff to talk about. Okay, well, it's still right. staying in. Um, how's it going, guys? 
Wait, we didn't say our names. Justin, Tom, Frank. We all know it. Bladlands. <laughs> So I would actually like to open the pod by issuing an apology. To whom? Uh, Justin? To the Plaid Lads Nation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, I would like to, apo- <laughs> I would like to apologize uh, for the last episode wherein I was fucking wilding out. <laughs> and I, at some point I decided to say that Justin wanted to skeet in Joanna Newsom. <laughs> that, that was uh, a uh, what, that was a moment. What I what I should have said <laughs> was that Justin wanted to skeet on Joanna Newsom. <laughs> Jesus Christ, Frank! What is this? What this I'm is sorry. not? This is not you. <laughs> no, no, it is him. Let the world know what happened to my little baby boy. <laughs> little baby boys all grown up. <laughs> Talking yeah. about skeet. <laughs> so is Justin, apparently. <laughs> oh, God. What? You off pod said that you want to get a headboard so that you stop sliding off your bed when you jerk off. <laughs> I was riffing, bro. <laughs> also, I need to stop uh, wetting down my sheets before I get in. <laughs> Aren't you guys glad that we're not having, like, these are conversations for context that we used to have in public. Um, <laughs> loudly. Yeah, loudly. now we just fucking record them and broadcast them to the public at large, time immemorial. But we used to have these conversations in front of, like, angry, bitter senior citizens. <laughs> yeah. I kind of wish it was that way. <laughs> Do you want to... Because now they're going to die soon. invite our parents in to watch us record live? Uh, J-Baby, how are you doing? Are you back on the SIGs? Um, yeah, I've been smoking. I haven't quit yet. It's hard, guys. Is that why you're so verklumped? Yes. Well, no, because my lungs are filled with smoke, so I'm pretty pacified. <laughs> uh. I got about... Um, like a half hour into quitting, when I realized my life was a um, a, a, a gaping black hole <laughs> um, that I filled with uh, uh, cigarettes, and then I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! I'll deal with this later." <laughs> <laughs> We're putting that problem off for another day. Yes, and I've been having a grand old time since. <laughs> uh... Did you ever smoke, Frank? Oh yeah, I smoked for. A l- I smoked while I worked with you guys. Mm-hmm. That's right. I remember that now. Why did you start again? You oh, because you started working at our branch. Yes. <laughs> you were working at a different store, and you got moved to our store, and you you were like, "Oh, I'm smoking again." Yeah. <laughs> what did you smoke? Uh, I started smoking when I was in college, um, and then I stopped for a long time. And then I started working for the store that we work for, used to work for, and the depression and anxiety set in almost immediately. Uh, and I chose the sad man's easy medicine, which uh, were 
Good old Marlboro Reds. How can anybody smoke those, man? Uh, I can and did. <laughs> Which is, Justin has smoked more for longer than I have and did, but the amount of Marlboro Reds that I have smoked in my life mean that my lifespan is significantly yeah. shorter. <laughs> yeah. They, um, I think an ingredient um, in uh, Marlboro Reds is a, a cartoon box with a skull and crossbones. <laughs> it, it definitely is. <laughs> Um, well, that's what they look like. And then like. I then I stopped like a year into working there or whatever it was. Mm. I uh, smoked as well. I uh, smoked all through college, and uh, I actually got Justin smoking. That's true. Uh, so well, awful, awful person. Well, that's the thing. He's gonna die from it. It's and true. I'm <laughs> just gonna go on the record. I'm just gonna confess to the murder now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're Salieri. Uh, well, I was I was 18, and Jersey had just passed that law making it so you can't yes. buy cigarettes. So you're 19. Yes, it's 21 yes, yes. now. Uh, yeah. And we had a friend who worked at a drugstore, and I had decided that I wanted to try smoking because I just started at community college, and that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I got our friend who worked at the Rite Aid to hook us up and uh, took my ID. He was like, oh, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. You may have as many cigarettes as you like. <laughs> it's not even for alcohol. <laughs> it's cigarettes. I think I bought like a garbage bag of pipe tobacco, too. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I had my cigarettes and Justin was with me and I went out to my car and I, I lit a cigarette and he looked at me with that like mixture of repulsion and curiosity. <laughs> Yeah, and he was just like, "Hey, hey, can I have a can I have a drag off that? Can I try that? Can I have a cigarette? Because I'm baby Justin, <laughs> yeah. and this cigarette's going to make me a man. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And he t- he took my cigarette and he took a single drag, and he started coughing and he went, "Ew, ew, icky," <laughs> were his exact words. <laughs> he instantly grew a beard. <laughs> he said, "Ew, ew, icky." And then he said, take this. This is disgusting. And I took my cigarette back. And since that day, (laughs) Justin has not gone outside of a quitting attempt. Justin has not gone like an entire day without smoking. Yeah. And it's going to kill him. And it's my fault. It's 100% Um, your fault. I'm going to blame Frank too for for no reason. (laughs) Uh, For reference, when we worked at the store that we worked for, uh, when Justin would go on his lunch breaks... Instead of eating, I assume yeah. you just smoke cigarettes the yeah. whole time. <laughs> yeah. Because I never saw you eating anything or going to get food or doing anything remotely uh, involving putting nutrition into your body. No, all I you, eat is uh, some uh, z- cigarettes. Maybe I'll get a cup of coffee. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway. <laughs> um, if anybody's out there listening on the fence about smoking do it it's, <laughs> do it. it's, it's fun and cool it's it's great you're you need, so going up you need to spend your money on something <laughs> and you're continuing a long proud tradition of people being exploited <laughs> to, to by big evil corporations <laughs> so so look at it this way guys i mean it's only when you're young you're only young once and then you can quit later maybe <laughs> if you don't become super addicted. Yeah. So like Frank was able to quit. Mm-hmm. I was able to quit. Mm-hmm. Justin wasn't. So that's like a 66% chance. 
that yeah. you'll die from smoking. So just like, you know, roll the dice. You'll like, you know what? You're going to live forever. You're 20. Like you'll be in the percent that doesn't get addicted. Addicted. You're, you're fine. Roll them dice, baby. <laughs> um, speaking of rolling the dice, uh, can we talk about the news? The news. Thank you for that, Justin. Did Thanks, you Justin. Thank you, Fat Justin. Thank you. Thank you, Fat Justin. <laughs> oh, no. Can't do that voice anymore. So, what a weird, wild, wacky world. Uh, so, this week in the news... Um, uh, We're, uh, we might all die. Well, okay. Okay. Okay, I don't, I don't know anything about this, so you guys right. have to explain this Okay, so... Last week or couple two weeks, weeks ago, two weeks uh, two ago weeks. now, uh, Valentine's. There, there was a an attack. So everybody knows Pakistan and India are uh, not simpatico on a little place called Kashmir, the sweater country, mm-hmm. and uh, this is the Himalayan a place where there's literally nothing. It's basically just a bunch of mountains. They just it's re- mountains. It's empty mountain ranges. All right. I'll make a controversial statement. And if I'm wrong and you're from Pakistan or India, send me a letter at me, man. Let's talk about it. But I feel like this is pretty accurate. So basically, Pakistanis and Indians, uh, there are many kinds of Indians with many different languages and ethnicities. But by and large, the kinds of Indians and the kinds of Pakistanis that live along the border between the two countries are the same people group ethnically and linguistically. It's just one group is predominantly Hindu and the other group is predominantly Muslim. And it's a great source of friction. And when uh, India gained independence, they partitioned the Muslim majority part of that area into Pakistan, which originally included Bangladesh, but eventually Bangladesh became its own thing. Uh, And they don't like each other a lot. And even though they share so many ethnic linguistic things, they pretend like their languages are different languages when they're really not. It's a language called Hindustani, but they pretend that it's Urdu and uh, Hindi. Uh, So, And they share, let it be said, centuries of history with one another before this. Yeah, but just like so many other things, when two people groups are so similar, that can be, uh, or, you know, they hate each other that much more. Uh, so they fight over Kashmir, the Himalayan region of southern Pakistan or northern India, however you want to look at it. And, uh, so they're both nuclear states. They both have developed the bomb and, uh, they both have very, so we should say in terms of their nuclear armaments, um, they both have a very small uh, amount of nukes and they are low yield Hiroshima sized bombs. Yeah. However, yeah, so their sort of their agreements on how to use them are what's problematic. So not too long ago there was a non-state actor <clears throat> a non-state actor terrorist attack on a group of Indian military in which a bus was bombed and 40 Indian soldiers were killed. It was a non-state attack, but uh, the Indian government's policy on nuclear weapons is they have a non-first strike agreement, meaning they will never launch an attack first. But they also have a policy wherein they reserve the right to invade with their army a country th- uh, that is the source of terrorist attacks. 
so uh, the Pakistanis uh, 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 ha- basically have reserved the right, reserved the right to uh, tactically use their nuclear arms against any invading army. So basically, uh, an, uh, the Indians will invade even though it's non-state, and the Pakistanis are willing to use their nuclear weapons first if they're invaded, uh, which would then authorize, under Indian law, the Indians to use their nuclear arms in retaliation. So what's happened is it's been about two weeks since a Pakistani non-state actor blew up a bus. And by the way, when I say non-state actor, there's a gargantuan asterisk next to that. We don't... <laughs> a huge blinking light. So the- it's basically just parentheses, shrug, it was probably a state actor. <laughs> the- so the, the thing about Pakistan is that... Um, Michael Showalter? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Pause. A state, a state uh, the state. <laughs> yes. An actor from the state. So Michael Ian Black or Wait, did you say Go on? <laughs> what did you say before you choked? Did you say Joe Latrulio? <laughs> you said Michael Showalter. Just go on. Okay. <laughs> anyway. So the thing about Pakistan is that it is a parliamentary system. But it's like a quote-unquote parliamentary system yeah. with a prime minister. The current prime minister is a dude named Imran Khan, uh, who is a former like super famous cricket player. Um, but the thing about Pakistan is that it's basically just controlled by the military deep state. Mm-hmm. Um, and the military is extraordinarily popular in Pakistan and in India. The, India, uh, the Indians take great pride in their military. Um, so if the Pakistani military, like uh, Tom said, just wants to start popping off. They really don't have to answer to the government. They kind of can just do it. Pakistani. So where this gets really bad is that in the past week now, uh, including earlier today, there the Indians, in response to the uh, terrorist attack, Asterix, sent a sortie of aircraft into Pakistani space to blow up terrorist camps to which the Pakistanis responded having their airspace violated by shooting down two of the planes, uh, which is just escalating things. Apparently, they've captured one of the pilots. Uh, uh, yeah, there, there is video of that. Um, they are treating him remarkably well under the circumstances. They were He was attacked by civilians as soon as he ejected safely, um, and the Pakistani military, on video, intervened. From him being, he was getting the ever-loving shit beaten out of him by Pakistani civilians, uh, and the military actually intervened and shielded him from the civilians. Um, and there is a now a video that they released uh, of him cooperating pretty amicably with uh, Pakistani military interrogators, uh, where they are giving him cups of tea, and he is uh, very polite and amiable, and not releasing any sort of outward spider sense stress signs that you normally would in situations where someone is being coerced uh, either in military or a police type interrogation. So it seems like Pakistani uh, Pakistan, who is a signatory of the Geneva convention is sort of upholding that stuff right now, but they do have to return him within a week if they don't want to violate that particular in piece of uh, international law. So now, so, uh, uh, and Frank, well, I, I think you can answer this a bit more intelligently. So one thing to keep in mind when we're talking about India and Pakistan 
is I think Frank mentioned this when he mentioned sort of the size and scope of their nuclear arms. Uh, these are not, although when you look at India, you wonder why, why they're not given their population and economy. These are not superpower militaries, meaning that no. the, the planes involved are like seventies era, a few generations back kind of old style, you know, Soviet era planes and uh, like mirages or something along those lines. Uh, and like, the nuclear arms are much smaller. Their standing armies are much smaller. The reason Pakistan reserves the right to use uh, their nuclear arms in case they're invaded is because their military is a little wanting. Uh, yeah, yeah. The the Pakistani military, especially in comparison to the Indian military, is small and shitty and poor. Um, and and you know, keep in mind, like Pakistan is not a small country. It's it's in this group of countries that we don't think about often enough because they're enormous, but not quite like USA, China enormous, uh, or India enormous for that matter. Which is like uh, Pakistan's around a hundred million people, I think, yeah. or ninety million something on the order versus uh, one point three or four billion people billion. Uh, with a b-, b. Uh So, but even so, even with that many people, India's military. They don't have like stealth hypersonic jets and enough nuclear arms to eradicate life on Earth. But still, now, Frank, you can answer this. So a war could be very costly in terms of human lives and environmental degradation. But Frank, you could probably answer this. What are the implications for the various allegiances sort of causing this to expand? Um, So for right now, everybody's kind of pulling back. Um, The United States is elsewhere occupied. They are currently our special little boy is in Vietnam currently trying to iron out uh, denuclearization talks with North Korea. I'm sure that'll go swimmingly. Um, And China, who is Pakistan's big old friend, has basically stayed out of it, except for uh, a a state spokesperson of China just basically telling everybody to chill a little bit. Um, So India's two big backers are Russia and us, USA, USA. Uh, and we have taken a hard line against Pakistan since the Trump administration began because Trump blames Pakistan for a lot of terrorism, which is probably true. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, sorry, like he's right about some things. It doesn't mean he knew that. It means somebody told him that. So for right now, the global order is basically staying out of it, which is weird because the last two times. Uh, India and Pakistan really started to go at it. It took the global order telling them to calm down for things to not happen, like things to really not start popping off. And let's uh, and that was, let's keep in mind they've 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 had quote unquote wars before, and I think they've had wars before while they were both nuclear states, and yeah. obviously no arms were used. Uh, so we sort of been here. I don't think either side really wants anything. This is this is I don't think. Besides Kashmir, which, as Frank said, is basically just empty mountains where sweaters come from. It's not really that useful. It's really more, you know, it's a pissing contest. They don't really have territorial ambitions in each other's countries. Uh, you know, it's it, it's like the it's like the last scene in Pulp Fiction. It's just it's Honey Bunny and Sam Jackson uh, with guns at each other. Um, in lighter news. Um... <laughs> A uh, friend of the pod, uh, director of Charade, Stanley Donan, has died. <laughs> uh, we in Pladganistan. <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> Salute you, sir. 
Um, and and then I wanted to bring up um, the death of uh, comedian Brody Stevens. Um, he was a hilarious, um, super positive uh, comedian who uh, was very open about his struggles with uh, depression. Um, I I grew to know him through his many podcast appearances and then his stand-up. Um, and he committed suicide on, I believe, February 22nd. Um, and each... Has it been happening more lately? Of... Of celebrity suicides, every every time it happens, it it's like a another hit to the armor <laughs> of that things uh, things can work out. You know what I mean, Justin? Yeah. Do we need to get you like an espresso or something? Is there any way we can turn this mood around? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, all I'm saying is, um, um, with uh, mental illness and especially with something like suicide, um, it's it's a very certain kind of mood. And spot that you're in. And it's it's always hard to tell. And whenever these things happen, uh, you hear uh, people on social media saying, you know, uh, if, you, if you're struggling with something like this, uh, uh, here's a phone number to call. And uh, saying to people who are the loved ones that these are like the warning signs and everything and and what i want to say is the to the people who are actually uh, uh affected by it that when you're at, in that deep spot that passes um that's driving on a a, a bumpy road that will pass all of the underlying things will not pass without um without work without help but it's just the wrong things all meeting up into one terrible thing that lead to things like this i uh i saw <clears throat> uh, an article and i'm sorry i don't have the source uh, but basically said that uh, suicide interventions, uh, uh, the, the way to view them is as a crisis response. And what they did is they tracked the uh, five-year survival rate of uh, suicidal people in these crisis interventions. And they found that the five-year survival rate was something like 95%, meaning okay. that uh, even, you know, notwithstanding any... Uh, uh, major depression or addiction or anything else that was happening uh, once the episodes of suicidality uh, or, were over, uh, there was no sort of persistent chronic threat of death. That so, so like you're saying, like it's, you know, when you're at that hyper depth yeah. 
uh, treat it like it's a crisis. Yeah, it, and it'll pass. And it's it's hard. It's very hard to say that to you know the people, people who are in it through it. Um, but it's just a, a a momentary glimpse of hell. <laughs> you know that as long as you can move, uh, it's 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 hard. So I I got my my trumpet out. I was going to play taps. But then this got too like somber and serious. Well, no, I mean, here's the thing. Taps is, a, you know what? I'm glad that you <laughs> you bring it up because we can acknowledge that it could have been an ironic thing. But I want to say yes, do it unironically. All right. Oh man, I really hope I do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for it. Let's go for it. Oh jeez, it's not all right. Hold on. <laughs> Is it not in tune? Uh, I gotta find it. <laughs> oh, fuck. Rest in peace. So this week on the pod, uh, we did the 1999 drama film uh, directed by Sofia Coppola in her debut as a film director. Is that right? Yeah. It's uh, The Virgin Suicides, adapted from the debut novel by Jeffrey Eugenides from 1993. So the plot of the movie is as follows. In in the suburbs of Gross Point, Michigan, a group of neighborhood boys, now grown men, reflect upon their memories of the five Lisbon sisters ages 13 to 17 in the late 1970s. Unattainable due to their Catholic faith and overprotective parents, math teacher Ronald and his homemaker wife, the girls Therese, Mary, Bonnie, Lux, and Cecilia are an enigma that fill the boys' conversations and dreams. Narrated by Giovanni Barabisi, by the way, I don't think we find out which kid he is. Um, I always assumed he was the tall kid. Yeah, I figured so, too. I thought he was Uh the little guy. I can see that, too. During the summer, the youngest sister, Cecilia, slits her wrist in a bathtub but survives. Her therapist is played by Danny DeVito, which is hilarious. Yeah, he is. Uh, After her parents allow her sisters to throw a chaperoned basement party intended to make her feel better, she excuses herself and jumps out of her second-story bedroom window, dying when she is impaled on the iron fence below. Pretty great. In the wake of her act, the Lisbon parents watch over their four remaining daughters even more closely. This further isolates the family from the community and heightens the air of mystery surrounding the girls to the neighborhood boys in particular. 
So, uh, this movie had, uh, I, I, I kind of had a little trouble making sense of its tone. Mm-hmm. And I'm so, I didn't realize, I was confused by the credits when it said it was written, directed by Sofia Coppola. Uh, but it totally felt like an adaptation of a piece of literature, yes. uh, a, a novel or a short story. Um, uh, so tone wise, the first act had kind of a liveliness, a lightness, a lot of comedy, a lot of comedy. And it was a little to me reminiscent of, uh, Oh, Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. It had, had 100%. It had a bit of a Tim Burton esque sort of, uh, floating point hypothetical yeah. Americana. Also ex- very much blue velvet. The yeah. beginning, the lighter. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the way it was treating the serious topic of suicide and her eventual actual death, like, I kind of, you know, like, I, I, I assumed that she was dead initially when I was watching it, and then she survived. And I was just like, oh, are these going to be actual suicides? And then, like, when she died, I thought about the movie's title, that, like, oh, she's a virgin, so, like, only the sisters who are virgins by the end will kill themselves. And it's just like... Uh, so I was kind of surprised that the movie had it in it to kill, kill them all. Um, so I was kind of like, the, you know, like, is it more funny? Is it more light? Is it more sort of camp, like Tim Burton? Or is it more sort of, like, profound... Uh, stuff well i mean that's um that's the question of the the tone tone i i don't want to get to it fully yet i'll I'll get to it a little later of my my thoughts on the but i totally see where you're coming from and the and the i've seen this many times first time by the way um this time hit me the most the uh of what i believe the tone of uh of the movie is but it depends on what you what who you think the point of view characters are is it the girls no it's not we are kept at a distance from them uh purposefully because it's all about the mystery of their suicides is it about the boys? No, it is not. Because we don't know anything about them except that they're obsessed with these girls. Uh, is it about Trip Fontaine? No, he comes in uh, in the middle. He's out in the middle. Um, is it the parents? No. Is it the... Community. The community. No, we don't get to know any of these people uh, in any real depth. Not that it's, um, it's not, but it's not the movie's fault. It's not a failing of the movie. These are real characters, but we're shown just surfaces because that's what the movie is all about. Surfaces of people and, and the distance you are from them. And I'll, I'll get into it a little later, but that's what I find so brilliant about this movie um so i think that this this weird tonal juggle um it's what it inherits from the book because that's something that happens a little bit more easily in novels Mm -hmm. um and i think that that sort of inheritance is maybe one of its more significant flaws because Mm -hmm. i think it's a little bit too and i've actually not read the book but you know how you can kind of tell mm-hmm. a thing 
lifts a lot from a book based yep. on the narration. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This this felt very literary to me, and I'm open to being wrong. I, if I read the book and the book is completely different, that's fine. Uh, then it's just things that I don't like about the way Sofia Coppola wrote the screenplay and not Ooh. things I don't like about the book. Um, but for the first, and I've seen this like three times now, mm-hmm. this was the first time that when the little girl says in the beginning uh, uh, to her doctor in the hospital, you know, what could, what could possibly be wrong with you? And she goes, Obviously, doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, I get it, Sophia Coppola slash Jeffrey Eugenides. Being a teenager sucks, and it's hard. But, like, thank you. I, thank you for spelling. I, not to jump, I just want to bring this up. I, I agree with you. I had the same reaction when seeing that line. Not to jump ahead to the end, but kind of they kind of bookend the movie, which is you have the young girl saying that, and our reaction is kind of like, okay, we get it. At the end of the movie, during a, um, a debutante ball, you have uh, an adult uh, ju- yeah. uh, back yeah, into in pool. Uh, a, a pool. I've had it. Making such light of oh oh these these poor young girls you know what did they have to uh, uh, fucking uh, worry about after they have all committed suicide? Uh, yeah 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 yeah. Let's actually let's take that apart uh, because it doesn't come up in the synopsis there. But uh, she slits her wrist, and they decide to have the party. But the thing that sends her out yes. is that local boys are invited in, and they're all talking and hanging out, and the sisters are very gregarious and hanging out. But the youngest one is kind of keeping to herself, and they bring in a, uh, another kid, and the kid has Down syndrome. Yeah. And uh, they're being very uh, friendly at him, but it's kind of they're they're kind of they're, they're using, taking they're yeah. using him as a piece of amusement and, and they're showing off to the girls before yeah. that the boys yeah. are all very shy and awkward, awkward but they find strength in exploiting this, this making kid. yeah making this kid a mascot basically and like, they had a it was a great fucking moment because like their one kid tries to make fun of him by saying oh flip flip a coin with him you know he always picks heads and he thinks that's uh you know oh he's 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 an idiot he's a he's an adult he's always going to pick heads but in if you watch it it never comes up tails mm. and i i just i love that little moment where it's just like yeah fuck yeah fuck your assumption yeah. of how no it never fucking comes up tails uh, you're putting this kid down, and that's the thing that the the girl, the youngest one, uh, is she? I want to say Celeste. No, Cecilia, Cecile. Mm. Uh, is so disgusted by this that she has to be excused from the party. Goes yeah. up to the roof and jumps off. And uh, that moment, the the whole thing, and that moment in particular. Uh, uh, speaking of literary tendencies create a bridge in my mind to that other soothsayer of uh, adolescent angst and preteen awfulness, uh, J.D. Salinger. Uh, yeah. Uh, that, that moment of 
being in this clairvoyant youth where you can suss out the world for what it is before your head gets too filled up uh, with sort of the minutiae nonsense of adulthood and the goings-ons of life. And she just <laughs> called the world for as it kind of was when Frank talks about that moment with the debutante ball at the end, uh, sort of cold and, and uh, kind of awful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she just says, no, nah, no, thanks. <laughs> now, that, that's one thing that I, I had the thought while watching it this time was uh, I found it interesting that the youngest child yes, was, was, the first. was the first one to commit suicide. And she was the one who was very, um, what's the word? Um, uh, uh, precocious. Uh, you later on, you see the kids, uh, the boys reading her diary yeah. and, and just skipping over the pages and pages of, of, uh, po- uh, classic poetry. Um, and I thought that's interesting and weird because we don't really see that precociousness from any of the other sisters throughout no. the film. And I thought that's an interesting choice and I, I didn't fully get it. And then I did. Which is there? The there's this youngest child. I think me and Tom are youngest. Mm-hmm. She's observing. She is the one with the clearest view of what the world is for <laughs> this family, for her sisters, for her in this world, um, and she's the one who understands. Uh, oh, this isn't great. You know. That said. The moment the the scene of the boys reading the diary, which is really creepy that they wound up with the diary anyway. Oh, super just, creepy! Yeah, I, so much of this, which we'll get to at the end, is the boys. The boys don't get it, and they kind of acknowledge that they know that. And there's kind of again how the film was a bit literary. There's a few soliloquies that kind of go on with the with the overdubbing of the of the boy voice. And uh, talking about the boy's experience of reading the diary and sort of getting into the headspace of a girl and being sort of beguiled by the mystery of not being able to understand them and sort of the magical way in which they live. And he summed it up by saying, like, and and knowing which colors go together. (laughs) And yeah, I I appreciated the comedy. I I think the comedy worked anyway. Uh, That wasn't a comic moment for me. That was kind of a beautiful moment. Um. Uh, I have one more comment about this par- portion of the movie. Um, I also think that what doesn't work in this portion is there are a couple of sequences um, wherein characters hallucinate the youngest girl. Yes. Um, I- I'll agree and I think you can just chalk that up to Sofia Coppola being a first time filmmaker. The way that it's filmed, there's no starkness to it. There's no suddenness or strangeness to it. She's just kind of there, and there's no visual signifier in the way that it's directed that it's supposed to be hallucinatory or strange. She's I, just kind of hanging out. I was kind of I, I, I was okay with that. I was okay with it. I think Frank. I kind of think that works towards the purpose of the film, though, which I'll get to at the end. There's a sleepy dreaminess to adolescence that tone wise this film did a very good i i kind of maybe i'll save this for like a a sort of a final remarks thing but uh uh i'm very glad i watched this movie for the first time 
uh, so far from my own adolescence that I fully watched it from outside my adolescence uh, because it was... I think it's very important. I don't. I haven't read the book. I think I'm going to um, because that was written by a man. It's very yes. important that this... I, I think that this film was directed by a woman. That... The... the I'll get to it now. Okay. The point of view of the film is not the boys, is not the sisters, it is not the community. It is Sofia Coppola. The movie itself, the narrator is talking about um, the mystery of these girls and how we were the ones who loved them. Um, but the film itself is not saying that. It's that added layer of dramatic irony that it's not even... Um, I think it is so very specifically Sofia Coppola, the dramatic irony. It's not the dramatic irony that we as the audience obviously see that these boys are wrong and we're not meant to take them fully seriously. Um, I think it's a, a far more subtle film than that. I think it is the point of view of Sofia Coppola making this film about the boys. I'll get to examples as we go on uh, where she kind of breaks the fourth wall of of the film because the film is a not a frame narrative but it's narrated by the boys grown up it's very wonder years it's very a christmas story you know it's all of those but with subtle differences that really at least to me shakes you out of that of it's also very like stand by me or something like that or the goonies you know <laughs> Anyway, let's let's get on to the next thing. Yes. At the beginning of the new school year in the fall, Lux forms a secret and short-lived romance with Trip Fontaine, the school heartthrob. Trip comes over one night to the Lisbon residence in hopes of getting closer to Lux and watches television with the family. Trip persuades Mr. Lisbon to allow him to take Lux to the homecoming dance by promising to provide dates for the other sisters. After winning the king and queen, Trip persuades Lux to ditch the group and have sex on the football field. Afterwards, Lux falls asleep and Trip abandons her. At dawn, Lux wakes up alone and has to take a cab of a taxi variety home. What do we think, guys? Uh, this is a sad sequence. Um, it's, it's, it's a good portion of the movie, too. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a really short synopsis. Like the build-up uh, is really long. Trip, so Trip's the hottest boy in school. All the girls want him. Even some of the adults want him. It's a little creepy. It's a little creepy, but it, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's pretty good, and Josh Hartnett is great. Yes. Perfect. And then he disappears. Josh forever. Hartnett's goddamn delightful. Yeah, he is. He's. Uh, we'll get to it anyway. Uh, no, we won't. Uh, so. Uh, so he's he's super attractive. All the girls want him, but he doesn't want any of them. He wants he wants Lux. He well, wants I what mean, he can't he, have. He he has them. 
<laughs> Much like Justin Totora, he wants Kirsten down. Jesus Christ. 36-year-old. Uh, 36-year-old Kirsten Dunn. Not in this movie, Kirsten Dunn. Jesus. No, but he, he gets around. He's he, he, he's a cat. He's a, he's a you know. Exactly. So uh, uh, He's a magic man, as the heart song says mm-hmm. in the soundtrack. Uh, a little on the nose, the heart in this movie. They, there are two heart songs that they do. Yeah, but when talking about talking about like tone and stuff, when the movie, I I think this is a great film. I, I'm just gonna say that now. When it goes on the nose, it needs to go on the nose. You know what I mean? Anyway. I agree with that. I agree with yeah. that. So he wants the girl he can't have because she's the only one he can't get a reading on. And uh, he, you know, pursues her. And uh, there's a scene where they're in an assembly watching a film and he comes in and he flirts with her and uh, he asks her out. And uh, she, uh, I suppose, acquiesces. And there, and I I loved watching this scene, this Mm. long shot of Kirsten Dunst because uh, she had this oh-so-coy kind of smile that was throughout everything, all of her interactions, but especially her interactions with boys, because uh, she was an adolescent and she was a bit, um, you know, in, enthralled with all of that. And she would had another crush earlier and would write in felt pen onto her underwear the name of the object of her crush. Uh, so, so anyway, so she's sitting there and uh, she, she's facing forward at the presentation as Josh Hartnett makes and Trip Fontaine makes his moves. And she smiles, that coy smile, and agrees to go out with them. But immediately after, immediately after, sort of the wave of joy wears off her face in the flirtatious conversation, there's this, like, emptiness that comes over her. And I think it's a wonderful subtlety of Kirsten Dunst's performance. Speaking of subtlety... I, I think this is a good uh, moment to talk about the performances in the film. Um, it's a goddamn shame that he's a right wing crazy man, James Woods. But James, James Woods, he's amazing. Is amazing in this. Uh, Kathleen Turner is amazing in this. Um, even though, um, very much at the beginning, the youngest daughter was was heavily. Uh, uh, it, involved she was fucking great kirsten dunce is obviously uh the focus of the film and she's great but all of the sisters are amazing in this in their slight differences in their similarities as a family unit um but here's here's something i wanted to talk about which i appreciate about the film is that as parents um, as strict parents, uh, James Woods and Kathleen Turner, um, they take a turn later on. They do seem strict, but not insanely so. Not over the top throughout most of the film. Um, which makes this movie so interesting it's not a so I, it's a it fully is a mystery i i until towards the end i want to make a comparison uh so i want to compare this film to the film carrie yes uh and there's a notable difference so in both films you have a highly christian conservative mother who is in charge of an adolescent female 
uh, trying to protect her from sort of the wicked world and sexuality uh, and sort of the measure of failure is sort of them becoming uh, is basically them having sex them becoming involved in sexuality and, and worldliness and uh, where but whereas in Carrie the father is absent and uh, we are to believe that Carrie is the product of sort of a unsavory tryst between the mother and the father uh, who then isn't around uh, in this film the father is present but we see him to be totally ineffectual. Yeah, uh, he is completely. He's, he's in these. He's this laughable stereotype. Watching the game when the priest comes over to to, to talk to everyone, and he's completely enamored with the game and his beer. Uh, but then there's this interesting dynamic where he seems to be the more permissive one as Josh Hartnett Trip Fontaine uh, launches his plan to uh, take all the girls to uh, homecoming. And he's the one who seems to be on board, and uh, the mother is the, the, the one who needs to be convinced. Um, and I think that's interesting. But that's, but, that's, <laughs> but that's very important, that the mother is fairly easily convinced. You know what I mean? That It's not this cartoonish uh, uh, thing. Whereas Carrie was an allegory, this is uh, um, a... Uh, a Almost a kind of emotionally distant um, uh, and uh, periscoped, periscoped view view of of a reality. That that's why I think the the slices of humor within the film uh, aren't just there to break up the the mystery or the bleakness they're there to sh- um in its own artistic way uh show a reality to the situation which is the reality of these girls being um uh, viewed as objects to be owned to be ogled to be viewed to be loved to be uh ooh there's the thing we'll get to it. We'll last. get to it. But, but like, for example, uh, the scene uh, in the beginning when the youngest daughter commits suicide at the very end of the shot, the sprinkler starts going. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very funny touch. It's also a very real touch. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And and that's why I very much appreciate that it's not a cartoonish uh um overbearing parents. They are overbearing. Although they, well, the, it, the third it gets overbearing. Yes, yeah. 100%. Frank, do you, do you have thoughts on <laughs> Are you done not fiddling pa- with your computer? N- not particularly other than James Woods is really good. <laughs> uh so briefly 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 uh so Trip Fontaine is played by two people. Uh the young version is Josh Hartnett. Mm. Uh and it's beautiful and perfect. Uh in his full bloom of youth uh uh wearing the worst wig I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's you know he's perfect for the role. Uh and and everybody seems to be more or less the age they're meant to be playing. Yeah, which I find fascinating, and uh, when you do that, you often find that not a lot of people go on to have fruitful careers. Mm-hmm. Basically, Kirsten Dunst is the only one who went on to have a fruitful career. And, and even and even Josh Hartnett. Eh, Josh Hartnett, more. What's or less, he done lately? 
he did not Penny dreadful from a, a couple a few years ago who remembers that i don't uh, i'd say him and and uh and oh and the one sister i recognize her yeah i have no idea from the, what the though. like thin-faced sister yeah who knows uh, I, I should look. Uh, I I was gonna say um, two of the younger kid actors have gone on to some success. One is Hayden Christensen, and the other is the guy from Rooney, Jason Schwartzman's brother. Uh, I was gonna oh. say the other one is Jonathan Tucker. Uh, him too. <laughs> Who's Hayden Christensen? He was uh, Anakin, Anakin Skywalker. No no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, in the movie, he's the awkward kid. Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> He's the one. He looks like a baby. Is he the tiny kid? No, he, no, he's oh. not the tiniest kid, but he does look like a baby. But he looks like a baby Hayden Christensen. Interesting. Which is he was like sixteen when or seventeen when they shot this movie. Interesting. Uh, uh, anyway, let's. Uh, let's anyway, no, 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 no. I had a point. Which is he's played yeah. by two people. Yes, one is Josh Hartnett, but he's yeah. also played by the grimy adult. And he goes on. Uh, they have this weird sort of interrogation sequence where the boys, I suppose, in a completely off-screen investigation they launch, they find him when he is revealed to be in an institution, a rehab, a mental institute. We don't know. And they're, they're talking to him, and he's recounting the love, and he talks about it as if it's the singular event of infatuation and desire. I walked home alone that night. I didn't care how she got home. It was weird. I mean, I liked her. I liked her a lot. But out there on the field, it was just different then. That was the last time I saw her. You know, most people will never taste that kind of love. But at least I tasted it once, right? It's time for your six o'clock group meeting. But the he excuse, uh, it's done it's <laughs> over he literally leaves her in the middle yeah. of a fucking uh, field in the open which, which that scene is my key to the understanding of this film uh, in this viewing which is I, I don't believe that the the kids went to interview interested parties uh, later on okay. to make this documentary I believe that is Sofia Coppola I, ah. the the rest of the film I can see all of the narration of the older uh, children um, being directly from the novel you know makes total sense it feels like it I would be very surprised if it, if that was in the novel that interviewing of the older Trip Fontaine because that feels so much like a, a Sofia Coppola edition which breaks you out. It's it's weird. There are two moments. That, uh, most of the film is just narrated by one of the adult children. Except for two moments, which is after the, uh, the youngest uh, sister commits suicide, they have an assembly. And... Oh, God. The, yeah. the voiceover uh, is interrupted... By, I'm assuming, one of the people putting on the assembly talking about the color of the yeah. folder. Yeah. They picked green because it's a happier color. Obviously, we can't use red. Which, that feels very odd and out of place until you realize, oh, then later on with Trip Fontaine, um, this is... Um, 
Sofia Coppola signaling at the bullshit of the yeah. older child narrator. It's all bullshit. When when the kids say, you know, it didn't matter that there were girls, uh, but we, we loved them. So much has been said about the girls over the years. But we have never found an answer. It didn't matter in the end how old they had been. Or that they were girls. But only that we had loved them. And that they hadn't heard us calling, still do not hear us calling them out of those rooms where they went to be alone for all time. And where we will never find the pieces to put them. Having broken curfew, Lux and her sisters are punished by a paranoid Mrs. Lisbon by being taken out of school and confined to the house. The sisters contact the boys across the street by using light signals and sharing songs over the phone. During this time, Lux rebels against her oppression and becomes overtly uh, promiscuous, having anonymous sexual encounters on the roof of her house late at night. The neighbor boys spy from across the street. After weeks of confinement, the sisters leave notes for the boys. The boys call the girls and reach them by phone, and the two groups take turns playing songs over the line. When the boys arrive that night, they find Lux alone in the living room smoking a cigarette. She invites them inside to wait for her sisters while she goes to start the car. Curious, the boys wander into the basement after hearing a noise and discover Bonnie's body hanging from the ceiling rafters. Horrified, they rush back upstairs only to stumble upon the body of Mary in the kitchen. The boys realize that the girls had all killed themselves in an apparent suicide pact. Uh, Devastated by the suicides, Mr. and Mrs. Lisbon leave the neighborhood. Mr. Lisbon has a friend clean out the house and sell off the family belongings in a yard sale. Whatever did not sell was put in the trash, including the family photos, which the neighborhood boys collect as mementos. The house is sold to a young couple from the Boston area. The adults in the community go about their lives as if nothing happened. The men acknowledge that they had loved the girls and they, that they will never know why the sisters took their lives. So this is kind of the best scene in the movie for me because it, it's the only scene that approaches what I feel like this film should be, which is... Um, when the littlest one is saying, you know, oh, these girls, I wish I could just feel them up once. And there's a creaking noise and the toes of a, a hanging corpse uh, just sort of gently push into the frame and push mm-hmm. into his face. Like, that's a moment of sort of shock and mystery and strangeness that this movie sort of could have evoked a little bit more often. You know, there's, I think the better version of this movie was made like 20 something years prior in Australia. And it's a film called picnic and hanging rock. Uh, it is a film that is similarly about, we'll get to it. We'll, we'll get to it. We're going to watch it someday. It's on on my list. (laughs) Uh, it is a film that is about virginal young girls who on an excursion into the outback of Australia, uh, one day disappear. Um, and the mystery of the film is where did they go? What happened to them? Were they just swallowed up by the outback? Um, much better movie, much creepier movie, much eerier movie. And had, I think a little bit more to say about sort of the mysteries of, 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 uh, the way teenage girls are treated in society, particularly Western societies. Crikey. Um, did they crikey. hire crocodile yeah. Dundee? <laughs> yes, I did. 
Oh, the local so, belt. Christ. For context, Tom like giggled to himself for a second, and I was like, he's going to do the crocodile. <laughs> I can't help myself. Now, Frank, you can't bring up a movie that none of us have saw, <laughs> because we can't refute you. <laughs> you fucking Just, piece of shit. I can't fully put my finger on what this film is about. It reminds me of me and Earl and the Dying Girl, um, which is a film. <laughs> Jesus Christ! It is shitty and bad. No, it's a good film, and you're a dumb bitch. <laughs> it's a movie that is about a very specific point of view that you don't get to see. Oh my God! I this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just I couldn't. Frank was that was hilarious and. Frank was laughing off mic, Jesus, and it was cracking me up. All right, I made my point. You guys talk about this movie. I think we're done. No, no! <laughs> Sophia Coppola. Jesus no, okay. Christ. Okay. Oh, no, okay. No. 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 All right. So, I'm fucking Christ. Uh, anyway, uh, so I this movie is not. I uh, subreddit. I'm 14, and this is deep. Uh, however. When I think of Sofia Coppola, and I think of her this movie, and I think of Train Spotting, not Train Spotting, <laughs> Jesus Lost in Translation. She's, translation she's Danny yeah. Boyle. Uh, who knew? Uh, uh, I don't think I'm 14. This is deep. I think I'm 19, and this is deep. Uh, which just like the age of 19 is over the end zone line of adulthood. So there is some profundity here, but I think there's a little bit of. Um, I don't even know what to call it, but just sort of the enthusiasm for profundity in youth. Here's what I appreciate about Sofia Coppola. One, I think she's a better filmmaker than her father. Uh, I think she's a better. I think she's a better and more consistent filmmaker than her father. Her father has made a few better films, but I think she is more consistent and interesting than her father is. Didn't she like direct a video for like? Like cut your hair or something like that. She did, did uh, she? Uh, this year giraffe. This year giraffe by Flaming, Flaming Lips. Lips, friend of the podcast. Oh. We did the album. I love that music video. Um, it's one of my favorite things. What she is not uh, uh, in both of those examples of Lost in Translation in this, she is comfortable with not answering questions. She lays things out. She does not answer them because you- the answer. Uh, doesn't matter. This film is about, uh, in in a sense, about these boys' uh, uh, obsession with these uh, sisters who have committed suicide, right? And they're left wondering why they commit suicide. And they don't know the answer. And they think they know the question to the answer, which is, you know, they loved them, and um, and thus uh, they become obsessed. I'm glad also, that I, I I'm glad that I never watched it as an adolescent, and thus de- developed any sort of sentimental attachment to it. Uh, because I think it kind of has a like a like a sugary sweet sort of like smack like Salinger esque. Yeah, <laughs> I don't um, I don't know what to call what I'm saying but yeah like i'm 19 and, and this is deep kind of yeah. like you're like yeah you're right this is a little interesting and 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 deep but uh you know there's i don't words 
fail or I fail. Uh, okay, so uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend. Um, yeah. Your film Dog Tooth, uh, which I think um, is more along the lines of what you wanted this movie to be, Frank, but that's yes. not what the movie is and not what the movie ever intended to be. <laughs> Apocalypse now movie? sucks. <laughs> Dog Tooth, better movie, by the way. <sighs> Different. This is a complete. I I like this movie a lot, actually. I'm I'm just being a ding dong. This is a very complex and subtle film about not what it's presenting to you. Eat shit, everyone! (laughs) A cripple walks amongst you all, you tired human beings. Things a cripple has not to working arms and legs. And vital parts fall from his system and dissolve in Scottish rain. Vitally, he doesn't miss him, he's too fucked up to care. did on the pod this week is Midnight Organ Fight by the band Frightened Rabbit, the second studio album by the Scottish indie rock band, uh, recorded in 2007, split transatlantically between recording in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and Glasgow, 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 Scotland. Uh, it, uh, yeah, and it's 48 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And it was produced by Peter Caddis. And it had uh, three singles Heads Roll Off, Fast Blood, and I Feel Better slash The Twist. Take it away! Now, Frank, you, you start us out. Uh, yeah, this is a great album um, that I came to around college. Um, it's a really sort of emotionally raw and sad album, and it's made doubly sad by the fact that the uh, lead singer, Scott Hutchinson, um, uh, threw himself off of a bridge in Glasgow uh, last year in 2018 and uh, committed suicide, which is something that's covered a lot on this album and the other Frightened Rabbit albums. And this episode, um, apparently. Yeah, and this episode, apparently. But it's just sort of like... Um, emotionally raw jangly guitar indie rock that um if i'm feeling some kind of particular mood still kind of gets me back in that college mindset i don't uh, i don't think i will ever because everybody moves on from something and i don't think i will ever fully connect with this with the time and the place that this album was ever again but when i do listen to it it does bring me back to that time and place in ways that I find very galvanizing and uh, cool. Um, so I want to say, uh, it's I, I, my heart goes out to uh, everybody involved in the band for um, Scott Hutchinson's uh, suicide, and everybody who was a fan of of the music and that it connects to. Um, 
and we all connect to different music. Uh, it means different things to us. Uh, that being said, I fucking hated this album, and I was oh, cringing the entire time. I This is my least favorite kind of music, and I think it is... Um, Possibly, I'm working on the theory that it is uh, harmful. <laughs> I am going to kill you, Tom, <laughs> with a stone. Now, now, Justin prepped me on this earlier, and I think he was going to do something more amicable, but I think that went out the window <laughs> as, as we taped this episode. The fuck. The, okay, okay. Oh, there are so many. We uh, Going back to a previous episode, uh, when we did uh, Neutral Milk Hotels uh, in the Aeroplane Over the Sea, and I uh, presciently said uh, that uh, fuck all of the music that try to do this. This doesn't try to do you, that. Oh at my all. god, it so no, fucking it does. Doesn't. In 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 the most basic fucking ways. In the Mommy and Daddy style. In in the ways of using uh uh In the ways that Sofia Coppola made a film that was uh sort of not like uh her better filmmakers that came before her and tried to make the sort of baby steps version like, of that. Like is her that father who did uh, uh Dracula with uh Keanu Reeves and uh, one yeah. from the fucking heart. Oh, oh, and what's that Robin Williams movie where he he's, he grows up really fast? <laughs> like, like, like those, yeah. like those uh, filmic ancestors, Frank. <laughs> huh? Not him. Like that, <laughs> huh? Frank. <laughs> huh? Huh? Well, is for, that what you mean? Thanks for tuning into the last episode of. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this album's great. Fuck Justin. Uh, no, no. I think it, I, what I despi- despise about it <laughs> is is the, the, it's this whole genre of music that um and the style of singing that sounds fucking Scottish. Th- no, it's not the Scottish thing because he's doing a Scottish version of this thing, uh, which is uh, it sounds like a guy. I, I was telling Tom, I call it the uh, 127 hours uh, guy, which it sounds like a guy who fell in a canyon and is crawling uh, back to society and whelping for some help. No, no, you're saying this about a dead man. No, 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 that's why I. I had to preface it because it's, it's very sad uh, about that. But there are so many musicians who do the same exact thing who have not uh, committed suicide. <laughs> um, and back to the neutral milk hotel thing, um, using uh, violent imagery for sexual uh, 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 lyricism. Um, but in this, it's so less poetic. The difference between this and that is it's so fucking, um, internal. Is it raw in a way that makes you uncomfortable? It's raw in a way that makes me fucking cringe. (laughs) Is it raw in a way that makes you uncomfortable and you don't like confronting that about somebody being, uh, 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 sort of personal about themselves and not dressing it up in sort of weird archness like in neutral milk hotel no no it's it's when an entire genre of music creates music that i don't see how you can listen to any of these songs uh um uh um truthfully and not weep 
I do not see how you can perform any of these songs truthfully and not weep. And thus it is so... <laughs> it is so performative. Now there are so... Go on. <laughs> I, I, I don't think it can be performative if it's honest. Oh, it 100% can be. When you make an entire career out of uh, raw, emotional, honest breakup songs, if that is your bag, you That's make... That's not the whole band, though. That's not the whole discography. It's a whole fucking genre, my friend. It's a whole fucking... Tom, back me up! <laughs> All right, okay. I gotta say. I was prepared to play nice, but you <laughs> threw down the gauntlet, my friend. I gotta say, this kind of music is not my bag. Uh, I... I was really searching for that Simpsons clip, so I wasn't listening so much to what Justin was saying. <laughs> But, uh, okay, so... Yeah, hard to find on YouTube. I kind of... I, I I remember him saying... So, okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> I disagree with sort of the larger societal implications of the existence <laughs> of music like this. But I also... I, I kind of... I'm going to deflect by saying this. Uh, so there's an interesting Venn diagram that exists for Tom. Uh, uh, and the Venn diagram has people who like Neutral Milk Hotel, people who like this record, and people who don't like either. And Justin is in the likes Neutral Milk Hotel, but doesn't like this. Frank's in the likes both, and I'm in the likes neither. Um, that's all. <laughs> the Neutral Milk Hotel album was about something. It's about something that Jeff Mangum was fascinated by, was interested in. Um, it is a very cerebral album, while also uh, full of raw emotion. This album is full of raw emotion about a heavy breakup which is why people like it and relate to it which is why people like it and relate to it yes however however <laughs> however um i think th this is um this kind of song i can i can i can uh Get on board a little bit with listening to it as as the singer. I've had those emotions before. I think we all have. Very intense, very dramatic, very over the top emotions. There and there's some there's some humor on the album. There's a, a line that I, I actually very much liked of um something like I don't want you back. But like the guy you're with, I hope he fucking died. Yeah, <laughs> you know that. I, I and I found that kind of funny. And and to give this album some credit, um, musically there's a lot of catchy 
uh, songs. I still hate the way he sings. However, um, it's it's that continuation and molding of like uh, emo and and, and screamo with the folk trappings screamo scream oh yeah yeah but at, at have least, you heard at, screamo at, at least screamo had some fun screaming um <laughs> as opposed to a, a whelping <laughs> also have you heard emo <laughs> um uh, um i just i but put yourself in the shoes of somebody who this song was written about it's all these songs about uh, how i will fucking uh 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 destroy myself because we broke up it's so fucking heavy it's so and and if this was the only album if and i don't i don't want to lay the the blame at the feet of a frightened rabbit because as i said i like this a lot better than a, a a lot of the other uh music in the genre but i hate the genre i hate it i hate it so much how do you feel about elliot smith I love Elliot Smith because it's that's the thing. It's not um, a, a genre of depression or sadness. It's a genre of depression, sadness, and romantic relationships, which which uh, coalesce into this toxic, fucking uh, 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 thing. That it's such a. Um, I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not, not going to tie this in with with like a nice guy type thing. But it's a different kind of guy. It's 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 the sensitive bro. <laughs> so uh, I I'm in a weird spot here. <laughs> I'm in a weird spot here because the game plan. And I'm sorry, Frank. I'm a, yeah. I'm a little sorry, and I, I I have a bit more of a relativist view of 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 things. But I I, w- I was coming into this worried that Tom was going to tear it apart. <laughs> I mean, okay. So the cat's out of the bag. I'm not. I'm not a fan. Uh, I. I'm not sure if I'm on board with the verbosity of Justin's uh, <laughs> critique. Uh, and like I said, I'm a bit more relativistic about it. I definitely recognize that in a lot of my peers, Plaid Lab peers, and one thing, like I, I caught a music video from this record, and they looked like me. You know what I mean? They, they even as musicians, they had some more, like similar tasting gear, but sort of like they were doing something th- following an, an an impulse that I would never have as a musician, and that I I don't have when I'm a consumer of of music. Um, but yet, it's one that I recognize in so many of my uh, peers as a musician and as a plaid lad. Uh, obviously, Frank uh, for liking this, and this record seems well loved, uh, and and uh, you know so many. And I don't. Th- there's an effusiveness to it, emotionally, that, and a rawness, a directness, like 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 putting putting the your plugging your iPhone charger, like like cutting the cord of your iPhone charger, splicing the cables and plugging them into an outlet, <laughs> no no charging brick type. Um, and maybe you are right. Maybe it is like a detachment thing. But I prefer when emotions are sort of channeled through a. Um, Art. <laughs> Metaphor. By, by, by what you mean to bullshit uh, uh, performative construction uh, meant to hide people's emotions. I've been drinking a lot of tea recently. 
and beer more recently. <laughs> more, more beer than tea. <laughs> I've been drinking a lot of tea, and I when you I like a, a, a sweet cup of tea, so I'll, I'll put a, a, tea, a teaspoon of sugar in. And now one day I, I forgot that I had put the sugar in, so I put another teaspoon in. And when I tasted it, it had way too much sugar. And it, it tasted disgusting. Now, we think sugar is, is a sweet thing. It's a, a, a nice thing to, uh, to consume. But when you have too much of it, it becomes disgusting and repulsive to Justin. Go on, Frank. Or, or Tom. I don't know what was the sugar in that metaphor. <laughs> but uh, I, we're getting below 10% here, so we might need to... Uh, yeah, a, I, I don't know what, what meter are you referring to, the battery or your <laughs> Frank, patience? Frank, I love you. I, I didn't think we would get to this point until we talked about the Pixies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, when we talk about the Pixies, the shoe's on the other foot. <laughs> I, I haven't been picking music things because I've been a little f- afraid mm. of this uh, of, of being the Frank in that scenario yeah. of having picked something, but now I feel like I have to kind of like... I kind of have to like put something. I have to put a sacred cow of mine on the chopping block and kind of eat shit. Mm. So uh, I'm gonna have to like oh. contribute more suggestions because it, it it doesn't feel fair that something obviously that Frank really loves. Uh, this was not my suggestion. This was yours, Justin. No, it wasn't. I've never heard of this in my life. It was yours. Was it mine? Yeah. Really? One hundred percent. What a delightful mystery! If this was just a random record, this, this was an anti-parent trap. Yeah. <laughs> um. Fuck this album. The Proclaimers are better. No, they're not. Yes, they are. Oh, five hundred mighty Zenda would. Over and done with it. It's over and done with. It's over and done with it. Over and done with. Uh, it's not really about him. It's a Niles one. Niles, Doctor Niles Fraser Crane is <laughs> is having trouble in his marriage. Also, Daphne is dating a ginger Viking man, but things Ooh, get terrible. Act. Uh, it reminds I, me of Justin. No, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, but thing, things get heated when Daphne and Niles are brought together for a night of possible consummation of their love. But also, I think not really. I think this is possibly the end of the gross Niles. I think maybe he might calm down. Dr. Fraser Crane number 16 or something or other. What happened one night or the winter? Winter comes but once a year. Love you all. See you all. Bye bye. So so this is not quite the end of gross Niles. There's still a little bit afterwards. Is there? uh, Yeah, I think I kind of agree with the impulse. So I think this is, I, um, if it's not the end of gross Niles, it's definitely the show engaging with yes, gross Niles. It, it kind of, uh, after the fact has created a narrative for Niles and Maris's marriage that it's been rocky. And that's why he's been such a creep. Yeah. But yeah, it doesn't really fully end yeah, the sh- or, or the, the, change. And I, I think it kind of, for the first time, uh, by putting them alone, I think this is the first time they've been alone besides the dress uh, modeling <laughs> conference. Uh, 
And I think we see some real depth of conversation with them and we see some real interaction with them outside of just sort of uh, sexual infatuation. And uh, I think this is laying the groundwork of taking it from a cheap bit to something that can be less morally questionable. Yeah. Uh, an actual love. Um, which reminds me of a few episodes back when they're in the bar and Niles is describing Daphne to the bartender. Uh, he kind of like gushes and he says, like, she's got eyes that uh, stare directly into your soul with neither artifice or evasion. <laughs> and I thought that was just such a beautiful... <laughs> I memorized it. We don't even need to find the clip. Uh, so it's the beginning of uh, them reckoning with it. And it's a pretty funny episode. It's ve- I think it's, it's very, very funny. It is funny. funny. The, um, the visual gag of Niles revealing the clothing that was going to be his sexual role-playing yes. clothing as... Uh, a sort of floofy pirate <laughs> outfit. Um, and then Martin walking in just as he does that is a wonderful visual joke. Yeah. Uh, and then Another, the line, uh, does it count as an eye patch if I wear it on my... Oh, yes. yeah, <laughs> Stop. Yeah, yeah, Another great physical thing, though. I don't know if it's physical as much as musical. Later on when... Uh, <laughs> yes. When Niles is playing the piano, it's very dramatic. Da, 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 it's very da, wonderful. And then she walks in. Oh, Dr. Crane, you play beautifully. Thank you. So fucking good. Uh, the crying bit where uh, he goes on this long thing, which I agree with. I personally, I I don't cry very often. Justin cries all the time. He has an entire Instagram about how he cries. Check it out. Uh, and uh, I don't. It's cry. mostly Star Trek at the moment. <laughs> I don't cry too much. Uh, and uh, he's like, "Oh, it's times like this. I wish I could cry." And it's, it, it, it's just it's not the kind of person I am. But then uh, uh, Eric, the red. Uh, brings Daphne back from their dates and gives her a smooch and then he's sleeping on the couch and he starts openly weeping. Oh, he can't even cry but has unrequited uh, crush and making out with uh, a ponytail guy. That gets him. That gets him good. Yeah. Can we talk about it? I touched on this briefly but this this ponytail actor I, I love him. I love how bad he is. I love him. He's he's a fun level of. Uh, I I think it's especially '90s bad acting. Um, yeah, it it looks like he read the lines for the first time when they said rolling. Yeah, <laughs> he seems like he's probably a local theater actor who is also bad at that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he's a nice guy. Yeah, if you're out there, <laughs> this 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 character reminds me of Justin. He does. I don't even really know why. He's just kind of like he's just kind of beefy and like has his rock band in a ponytail. Justin used to have a ponytail. I don't know. It's just in my mind. It's this weird connection I can't shake. I like him. Uh, uh, he never takes Fraser's coffee. Yeah, he never takes his order. Fuck that shit. He's too busy flirting with Daphne. That flirting was very odd and aggressive. Very. Admirable. But coming from both ends. So it's like, it's not weird in that sense. But it's like, how 
It's almost, how did they have this on TV? <laughs> yeah, how did they come up with that many food metaphors, like yeah. coffee metaphors? And I also think, put had a great zinger. Yeah. I think he says, uh, do you like cum in your coffee? Two pounds of the Kenya you blend. blend. <laughs> you remember it. Hard to forget. Excuse me, you haven't taken my order yet. Most people find that blend too intense. Not me. I like something that holds its body on my tongue. To have spilled something here, if you could just. I don't suppose you'd be interested in something robust if it didn't come on too strong. Oh, if it was a little bit sweet, I might take a liking to it. Would you like to step over to the counter and try my special blend? I'd love to. Oh, nothing for me, thanks. Yeah. And Niles uh, very hilariously spills his coffee at the <laughs> yes. moment. That, Which I would too, because yeah. that's gross. <laughs> yeah. There was a great zinger. He's a musician in the grunge rock movement of the 90s happening in Seattle. Good on you, Frazier, for catching on to that. Uh, so, I Justin, believe- was this the grunge kid? No, it's not the grunge kid. The grunge kid works for Elliott Bay Towers and helps them move some stuff. He's got like a leather jacket and ripped jeans. His name is Leroy. He has a surfboard. No, that's much later. He's Poochie from The Simpsons. No, Poochie comes much later. <laughs> so that's Poochie is uh, Cam Jansen. What? <laughs> Cam Jansen, that's a child child character. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> anyway, Fraser Crane. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, some great zingers. I've been trying to say this for a while. Uh, Eric, the Red breaks up with Daphne, and she says, "Oh, he said he needed <laughs> to focus on his music. Oh, I knew he was lying." Oh, I've heard his music. <laughs> That's going to be a clip, so don't worry about it. Um, yeah, it's very good Australian. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good line. Noi. Funny episode. It's a it's a funny episode. I like they're talking about his glockenspiels working. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, after she says it towards the end, there's a very long pause like so long that you think oh that's the joke that's fully the joke and then niall says oh the clock yeah (laughs) which which is um such amazing smart comic timing also we see a moment where niall's gets a hold of himself yes and i appreciate that that it's showing some where niall's is getting some character growth and some depth uh, because Niles is probably my favorite character on the show. Yeah. And probably uh, the best character. Yeah. And he show. definitely changed the most. And just yeah. that moment of realization where he catches himself uh uh when the Glockenspiel starts working spontaneously and sort of the the infatuation energy is sapped and he realized that yes, he, he does indeed love Maris. Now within the reality of the show, assuming that the writers weren't changing things as they went, she was a bit of a terror. But even in a relationship that doesn't work out, even in a relationship where he's not treated right, he truly loves her. Yeah. And he lets himself love her. And I think that's a wonderful quality in somebody. Yeah. That they'll let themselves, yeah. even if it's not the right thing. Uh, that's great. Coming up on recommendations. Going to tell you what to check out. Everybody, felicitations. Um, I would like to recommend, very weirdly, um, 
Some of my Christmas music was uh, <laughs> fe- featured on a New Zealand Christmas music podcast that you can check out right now, hosted by a very nice bloke named Dwayne. Um, it's was, called. Was this a relationship that you had cultivated, or did they just find you? No, uh, it, it was just a random connection on Reddit. Wow. Uh, but it's it's out there now. You can listen. Uh, it's a uh, a fun podcast. Um, it's got a Plaid Lads um, uh, connection because this episode he is talking about music from the Christmas Chronicles movie. Oh no! <laughs> so you can check. Was that there out. music in that movie? I don't remember. Uh, oh oh, the best music when oh, he racistly turns a yeah, jail cell yeah. into a. <laughs> He forces the black guy to play, uh, what was it, a trumpet? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I remember that now. Um, But you can check that out on all of the podcast things, Tinsel Tunes Podcast. Tinsel Tunes Podcast, tell Dwayne that Justin sent you. Oi, crikey! Or whatever they say in New Zealand. (laughs) They say, osh, nosh. (laughs) It's Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Uh, Frank? Frank? <laughs> uh, I'm going to recommend uh, The Winner of Mixed Drinks by Frightened Rabbit. Haha, <laughs> fuck you. Eat uh, my! Say Justin, it. you called me a funge uh, <laughs> two times the last episode. I don't know what a funge is, but I'm going to be one. Um, and re- also recommend Picnic at Hanging Rock by Peter Weir. It's like the version Suicides, but good. Um, I recommend uh, that Frank goes and fucks himself. <laughs> Um, go watch Dogtooth. It's a similar movie, equally read good. Um, go read some Shirley Jackson novels. Go read uh, yeah. We Have Always Lived in the Castle. In the castle. Uh, great, it's a, a similar-ish feel. Um, yeah. <laughs> go watch A Christmas Story and uh, The Wonder Years. And uh, uh, How I Met Your Mother. How I Met Your Mother, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Goldbergs. The Goldbergs. Yep. Go watch. Um. Oh, what's that one? Um, what else has narration? Speechless. I, I've I've watched Speechless a couple times. It's cute. Tom it has nothing to do with anything. It's got Minnie Driver in it. Delightful actress. Yeah. I gotta go see about a girl. That girl being Minnie Driver that Matt Damon's gonna yeah. go see about at yeah. the end of Goodwill Hunting. It's a fun movie. Elliot, oh, it's got Elliot Smith soundtrack. Much better than Frightened Rabbit. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Tom? Tom? I'm, I'm reeling. I'm reeling right now. I'll put it in in post. <laughs> uh, what, are we, what the fuck are we doing next week? I don't know. We're either, um, we're either doing a Carpenter special uh, with our a special guest, Steven Subaleski, a friend of ours. I see. Um, or something else. <laughs> okay. Because um, uh, uh, Superstar is very easy to find. Yeah. So. so I think we're either doing Superstar and the album Carpenters by the Carpenters, or I guess we can do um, uh, 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 Pather Pinchali. Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, music, which I'm forcing Tom to pick. <laughs> Yeah. It could be a new Path- thing that none of us know. Pathar Panchali but- is going to be a good one because there might not be an India by the time that we do it. <laughs> oh, uh, 
Oh God, I don't want to. It's like seeing seeing somebody's suggestion be eviscerated like this should make me not want to make I a suggestion. I was going to, but you guys were being sons of bitches. Uh, I mean, I don't need. I was si- going to put out a goddamn olive branch. But you don't piss me off. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. He went from Stone Cold to uh, Macho Man. There. <laughs> okay. 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 Goodbye. <laughs> that was a fun episode. That was a fun episode. I think that was a very great episode. That might be the episode that's too angry to be released. Lads is available on Apple Podcasts and the Google Play Store. At GladLadsPod on Instagram and Twitter. Email us at GladLadsPod at gmail.com. Justin's band is at Welcome to Wonderfalls on Instagram and Welcome to Wonderfalls.bandcamp.com. Also, at Somethings That Made Me Cry on Instagram. Tom's band is Elbow 8. Elbow8.bandcamp.com and at Elbow8band on Instagram. Music by Tom Dunning, who also engineers, mixes, and edits the show. Please leave us a rating anywhere you can on the internet or maybe a public bathroom stall. Goodbye. <laughs>